0: Cadell, thank you so much for being a guest on Psyche Podcast. I am super excited about connecting with you and talking about your amazing article in Sublation Magazine, exploring the work of Peter Rollins. But before we do that, would you mind just maybe saying a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? And then from there, we can kind of launch into a conversation.
1: Absolutely. So I think that the easiest way to uh, to to, to exp- Describe myself at least what I'm doing online is is that I'm the founder and the and the creator of Philosophy Portal. So, uh, if you're interested in that, just go to philosophyportal.online. Basically, it's an online education platform which I'm using to teach uh, foundational texts in philosophy and specifically modern philosophy. And the idea there is that we need to return to primary sources. Um, And we need to have deep, long form engagement with the greatest uh, books that have been written in the modern world in order to understand and get some orientation. Um, In some sense, it's a call for um, if we're going to try to build a new culture, if we're going to try and build a new world, we better have a real deep grasp of the thinkers who came before us. And so I've focused on thinkers like Hegel, uh, Nietzsche, Freud, Lacan. Um, and I'm I'm largely influenced by what I would call the Zizekian tradition, uh, and I'm also a big supporter of um, philosophers, analysts, theologians who are in what I would call the Zizekian orbit. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's all
0: so amazing, and and I resonate with so much of that kind of stream and and tradition. I'm I'm always curious, you know, when I'm connecting with new people you know, what their childhood was like, at least in terms of some of these like foundational values and 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 ideas. Did you come from either a religious background or or was, was philosophy something that was important kind of growing up? Um, maybe one way to kind of narrow down the question is like, how did you get into all this stuff?
1: Right. You know, so um, I was raised in a very secular home. Um, I had fleeting thoughts about, does God exist? Does God does God not exist? But it was a very open secular environment. And I, I, I didn't have much exposure um, to church, to liturgy. Um, my dad was philosophical. My dad was I would call my dad a naturalist. Um, actually, before he passed away, he actually gave me and he he had terminal cancer, so he knew he was going to die. He, he gave me a, a book. That was inspired by Zen Buddhism, so his his you know he 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 lean lean in that direction. Um, for me, I I really come at this, and and I actually talk about this in the preface of my doctoral thesis, uh, global brain singularity. But my origin is actually coming from a failure of becoming an athlete. My first uh, passion was was athletics. And it was in this time of sort of realizing, sort of cluing in, okay, this isn't going to work. You know, basically, I'm not good enough to become an athlete. Is like, I tell this story. It's actually, I think this is is relevant. We were at a family cottage. And I was sitting on this um, balcony looking out over a lake. And a man in his 50s who became a family friend came and sat down beside me. And he started asking me about... Uh, where the animals come from? Like he was pointing at birds, he was pointing at animals around the the, the lake, and I was like, "Oh, I've never thought about that." And, and he hands me this book on intelligent design, and so I start reading this book on intelligent design, and, and I literally am just, you know, being exposed to this literature for the first time. I'm like, "Oh, well, this is interesting. Maybe it's true." Uh, but what I immediately recognized is that they really disliked Darwin. So what I did was I, I just went to the bookstore and started buying some books on I bought on the origin of species and I bought some books on evolution. And, and that basically set me on a path to basically becoming an undergraduate in evolutionary studies. So so the tension between evolution and, and intelligent design actually was the original tension and, and contradiction that um, sort of um, motivated me and 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 stimulated me to continue my academic career. And the paradox I encountered in following this line of thought, ultimately, I was on the side of evolutionary uh, evolutionary thinking, was that I saw a lot of religious themes, uh, theological themes uh, come up in uh, some speculative evolutionary thought, in particular uh, related to technological singularity. I thought technological singularity was basically religion for secular evolutionists. Uh, And instead of having a rapture with Jesus and and, and going into some supernatural direction, we had a technological medium which was basically functioning in in an identical way in the sense that we're going to upload ourselves into a technological substrate and basically become immortal um, or, or, or existing in a, in a different space than, 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 than we know as human beings. Um, and, and that's what I dedicated my work to in my doctoral thesis. So my, my thesis global brain singularity is basically working through, uh, an evolutionary anthropology of the singularity. And well, that's, 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 that's long story short.
0: Dude, that sounds fucking awesome. (laughs) I may have to check that out. Yeah, that sounds really. I can, I can interesting. send,
1: and for anyone, for I can send you a free PDF copy because I think Springer charges too much. But um, yeah, for anyone listening, I always uh, send out a PDF.
0: Oh, okay. Oh yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, if you if you don't mind sending that, that would be great.
1: Yeah, not a problem.
0: So no, okay. So and I appreciate kind of that background. That's kind of helpful and and helping me kind of frame the conversation. I I guess where where I kind of wanted to start as we begin this journey of like digging into your article is do do you happen to know peter rollins is there anything you can kind of say about him and and if not i mean h- how did you get into his work and and what got you to kind of you know write this this awesome article in Supplation magazine about some of these things we're going to talk about
1: yeah peter rollins is great uh i actually um you know my my personal relationship with peter only stretches back to to january of of this year um but i was uh, aware of his work um Uh, for for a few years before actually reaching out to him. And when I reached out to him, he was very friendly immediately because, uh, as it turns out, he'd been following my work for years as well because when I was in my doctorate, I was doing a a YouTube series on less than nothing, uh, Zizek's less than nothing. And as I'm sure you know, um, for anyone who doesn't know, Peter Rollins is uh, very influenced by Zizek's philosophy um, from the more theological end. Um, and, and so he had he had he had he had known about me from that series. Um, and so he saw that as a, also an interesting place to connect. And we had a, a talk on on my channel earlier in the, the winter. Um, and then actually, I had the, the great honor of, of meeting him in Belfast. We did a little um, collaboration for his uh, his wake uh, event. Um, and and had a chance to talk to him a little bit about philosophy, psychoanalysis. We even talked a little bit about psychedelics. Um, and he's actually going to be teaching in... Um, I've got a course that starts on Philosophy Portal on the Accree on September 3rd, and, and he'll be teaching in that course on pyro theology. So what I'm looking for there in the Accree course is any way in that we can engage active um, Thinkers, practitioners in various fields, of course, for for Peter, he's in the theological end um, of bringing the accree to life in a new way. And I think he's he's a great example of that. But again, long story short, Peter has just been uh, nothing but um, a helping hand uh, since uh, reaching out to him personally uh, about, well, last January.
0: Yeah, that's really great, Cadell. So I know if anybody, you know, just Googles his name, they're they're gonna come across this idea of pyro theology and, and you get into it in your article as well. I was just hoping if you could kind of maybe explain what that is, maybe in contradistinction to, to what people would call theology. Like how, how do you begin to understand what he's trying to do with that?
1: Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting concept. Um, of course, pyro is like a synonym for fire, and, and it's like the it, it, what I what I what I see. I don't I don't want to put words in his mouth, but but what he says um, that that I specifically resonate with is that pyro theology, and I say this is at least for me is a minimal distinction. pyrotheology is not about life after death. But about, well, not about life after death in the supernatural sense, like when we die, we go to heaven in the afterlife, but rather that paradoxically, we are already proof of life after death that we have metaphorically died. It's kind of like, like that you could say in Ziziki terms after you've been through subjective destitution, after you've had some encounter with fundamental lack, um, in some sense after you've encountered death in this life that there's life on the other side of that and that's what i take to be pyrotheology it's it's this radical inclusion of lack it's this radical inclusion of death it's a going into lack it's a going into death um you know after you know in psychoanalysis, after you've been through trauma loss um again the term that always comes to my mind is subjective destitution um, that there is a negation of the negation to use hegel's logic that that is a negativity you encounter and then you can negate that negation so there's a life after that and so and and the concept i suppose again in jishkin terms of which i think rollins would also use is the concept of the the living dead you know that there there's this other side and 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 you know I take this to be a radical position, but also, I would say, a necessary position and potentially even a truer manifestation of what I would take to be the meaning of the symbol of Jesus, you know, in in terms of Jesus. Like, it's very weird to me, like, to contrast, for example, the symbol of the Buddha meditating versus the symbol of Christ crucified, is that this is a very violent image. Um, this is an image of someone literally being killed um, and scapegoated. And of course, in the symbol of Jesus, there's there's a resurrection. There's another side of this process. Now, that resurrection is often interpreted, again, in supernatural terms. Um, that there there's a uh, you rise and in, in, in into a different dimension but i think what rollins is trying to point towards is the possibility of thinking about this uh, again on this side in this life that's yeah
0: yeah that's no abs- abs- absolutely that 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 so resonates with me i i wonder w- would you mind spending a couple moments kind of explaining to people what you mean i know it's kind of in the Lacanian tradition this idea of subjective destitution when, 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 when you say that kind of kind of what you're trying to signify.
1: Yeah. Subjective destitution is, is a concept, which I, I take from Lacan. Um, But subjective destitution is, is also a term used by, by other scholars. Actually, Slavoj Zizek uses it in his book, um, his recent book, um, uh, surplus enjoyment, to signify basically like a gain in loss, um, and you know also to emphasize um, this gain in loss, meaning that there's kind of an overcoming of the illusion of a, a deeper meaning uh, behind the appearances. Um, it, it's to say that subjective destitution involves. A process where you think there's a deeper meaning behind the appearances given to us in reality, and then a stumbling upon the fact that there's a void, there's a lack, and again coming out on the other side of that process, um with the sense that 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 there is no big other. Uh so like you know, it's 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 if I could say the opposite of subjective destitution, it would be a sense the opposite of subjective destitution would be this idea of a subject existing in relationship to a, a belief of a, a bigger meaning or a deeper meaning behind the appearances. Like commonly this would be seen, for example, in ideas of like Jungian synchronicity, for example. Like I would perhaps juxtapose Jungian synchronicity, you know, this idea that there's there, there's a deeper meaning that you could piece together behind uh, behind the appearances. Um, with this, with this concept, and I, I think that that subjective destitution, the way I've seen it being used in various theory circles, is that it's a radical political concept. Um, that subjects of subject, bec- and precisely because politics often functions on the basis that there there's some some deeper meaning behind the appearances which are being uh, upheld or that the, the, that the subject of, of the big other has some contact with. Kind of like, let, let me just give a funny example maybe of like the Wizard of Oz. Like the Wizard of Oz is kind of like, and, and even like Dorothy encountering, you know, the truth of, of the Wizard of Oz is kind of like going through a process of subjective destitution. That there, there's some big figure who knows that pulls the strings. Um, and then you see that the man behind the curtain is just uh, an, impotent, uh, an impotent being just like you. Yeah,
0: no, totally. Do, do, do you think, and, and I know this is probably less Lacanian, but you, when, when, when people, I mean, I, so I'm a, I'm a practicing psychotherapist. I'm not a psychoanalyst, but, but I draw from a variety of different like psychological, psychoanalytic, philosophical kind of streams but, but there's some language like in certain existentialist, uh, kind of circles and, 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 you know, Donald Winnicott was big into this, this idea of the true self. Do, do, do you think that could be connected to kind of this idea of the big other or something outside of us that secures a type of foundation? Do, do, yeah. do, do you, do you, do you struggle with that kind of language when people talk about, you know, I've got to find my true self, I've got to find my real identity.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's all in how, yeah, I mean, it, it, it almost depends on how we're talking about this because like, make, make no mistake, even in the Lacanian, even in the Lacanian tradition, the, the cons, like what's at stake is the concept of truth. So there's, there's like, there's no, no, uh, I mean, every, I think everyone from the, the Freudian tradition in ter- in terms of the origin of psychoanalysis is, is interested in in a different concept of truth, a concept of truth that involves the unconscious. When we talk about finding the true self, though, oftentimes it becomes very um well, okay, so like my my bias is on the table, it becomes very like a, a holistic one, like like that there's a unified holistic oneself, and that I and that I can and that I can go on a search. A spiritual search. I can develop various practices. Maybe I can meditate. I can do psychedelics. I can go to therapy. I can, I, I I I can do various practices. I can I can do chanting, whatever, praying, whatever. And that I can become one with this ultimate agent, this this true self. Um, the way I understand it in the the Lacanian tradition is that the truth is more discovered in um the true self if we want to say is discovered in um accidents slips um mistakes errors you know like that's almost the i can give some very disturbing story i almost like here's the thing is i love disturbing stories here's here's the thing here's the thing with the truth is that when you stumble upon it oftentimes, at least this is always, I'm speaking from my perspective, my biases, right? But when you stumble upon it, it is very disturbing from the point of view of the ego. <laughs> right? Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to, the, to the point where it's like, I mean, well, you realize where there's, you realize why there's rational sensors. And you realize that oftentimes, we're, we're only capable of talking around the truth. Um, or, or 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 you know orbiting it in in some way like a, like we're a distortion of it or something like that. But sure. you know, I, I had a I I had a basically to say is like you have a rational narrative about what you're doing. You have a rational narrative about what you're up to. And the truth can be found in kind of the, the the slips or the deviations from that rational narrative. And I think that what's at stake in the truth from a Frodo-Lacanian tradition is getting more comfortable incorporating those slips and those mistakes into your rational narrative. Right. Or your, your and, and being allowing the coherence and the consistency of your rational narrative to be disrupted and disturbed. So I would say like the difference between me before and after studying Freud and Lacan and also going to analysis is before doing that, if I found something disturbing in relationship to my rational narrative, I would be more defensive and and, and I would try to pretend that didn't happen. Whereas now I'm much more open to the idea of changing with that mistake, and and also seeing mistakes and errors as as in some sense my best friend, even even things that might make me suffer.
0: Absolutely, no. you know, okay, now, this is this is gonna be interesting. And I, I promise, uh, like I said, I, I draw from so many different sources, like Lacan being one. But Pete Rollins on this on this podcast has given me shit for for liking at least a strand of union psychology. And, and for me, it's more what they would call post union, James Hillman and others. And there's, there's some really sophisticated philosophical work. Great. By the way, Hillman's actually my favorite. So, so I actually had a guy on his name is Stanton Marlin and he actually brings together, believe it or not, like Hegel and, and a, and a type of, he knew James Hillman. They were really good friends, but, um, God damn it. Now I forgot where I was going. No, Okay. Okay. I remember, um, there's a type of reading of jung's idea of the shadow which i think connects to part of what you're talking about mm-hmm. the, the 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 parts of us that are in absolute contradiction to like our more conscious parts that we want to show to others and so within us there's a type of negativity and lack you know that that we want to kind of move away from but but like you were saying practically you're at a point where you want to kind of stay close to that and try to kind of figure that out rather than just immediately like reject it. And that, that really resonates with me.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and I think like I'll I'll draw on um, something that inspired me in Isabel Millar's talk for the seminars for the Acree is she was talking about how masculine logic and masculine consciousness often juxtaposes one thinker versus another in a very, in in some sense, in a combative, in a combative way. It's like this logic of, of if you have like the logic in Lacanian terms is You create an all, but the condition of creating that all is that you uh, basically exclude uh, something. So like, for example, say uh, I'm operating in a Frodo-Lacanian lens. Well, I have to exclude Jung, right? Like this is a very masculine, like she's saying, that's a very masculine logic to think like that. She's saying like in her work, and I want to try and get better at this myself, is that the feminine position is more of a non-all where you don't have a one homogenous overall logical structure but you in some sense can make more connections between thinkers which are typically not situated with each other Uh, and i think that that's a very useful thing to play around with so like i i I try to do that yeah and i think both are necessary i don't think like we should say masculine is better or worse than feminine or feminine is better worse than masculine it's just sort of recognizing um like also recognizing sort of like the Biosemiotic reason for these different logics, like for example, you know, <laughs> a man creates an all in some sense to exclude other men from being with his woman, right? Like I'm not just going to let Absolutely. anyone come in and penetrate my domain or my home, right? Like you create a boundary, right? Where whereas anyway, whereas whereas women are more interested in creating like a group harmony or something like that, like making sure everyone's included.
0: You can yes, say something no. like that,
1: T- totally, but, but to play with this like to play with this in regards to how we how we think uh, about uh, the history of philosophy, right? Like, like, for example, um, usually Nietzsche and Hegel are positioned as opposites. Nietzsche and Hegel are positioned as antagonistic with each other, right? In in almost the same way that, like, you could say Lacan and Jung are positioned as opposites to each other or something like that. But I found a lot of like in Philosophy Portal, one of the things I was trying to do with teaching Lesbogs Zarathustra is, trying to demonstrate the ways in which there's unlikely connections between Nietzsche and Hegel that you never would have expected and trying to bring those out. So you can search for unlikely connections and and sometimes you can find some interesting stuff by playing around that way.
0: Oh yeah, no, I totally love that man. And I, I'm really tempted right now because I've just kind of gotten into Nietzsche and trying to do like a deep dive and, and I've interviewed a couple of people. So I really want to go there, but I think I'm going to try to control myself because I wanted to get back to kind of your article and, and, and Rollins and, and what, what what I what I would love to kind of get into is your I think your statement in the article, and I, I think this is big for Rollins that that the whole pyro theology kind of idea is situated within kind of the death of God theology, and and uh, I guess maybe we could start with this notion. So just reflecting on what you were talking about in terms of subjective destitution, it sounded like you were moving away from notions of like the self that pursue this fantasy of wholeness, I, I think we can even begin to think about that in terms of how we understand God. That that part of what you were saying, I think part of what Rollins is getting at, is that we have to understand even the heart of God being, you know, laced with a type of contradiction that, that God himself, God itself, is divided. I wonder if you could kind of reflect on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, death of God theology is, to me, the most interesting strand of philosophy, uh, the most interesting strand of G me too. Of course, again, it's again, it's yeah. So, I mean, we're, 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 well, that's again, my, my, my bias, but to me, like the deeper theological structure that I see also reflected in Rollins work is when you look at the history of Christianity, you have these fundamental breaks that occur throughout the institutional structure itself, you know, like going from, you know, um, uh, whether it's orthodoxy, Catholicism, Protestantism, of course, the big break between Catholicism and Protestantism. And then Protestantism, in some sense, opening up into what we could see as modern philosophy in some sense. Like, uh, you know, I mean, Hegel, for example, was extremely influenced by, by Protestants and, and mystics from the Christian tradition in, in, in this sense. You know, and, and oftentimes I think what's, what's happening in this sort of, what's happening in these divisions um, is in some sense a recognition of God being divided um, from a, from like from a, a, an understanding of God as 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 a wholeness or, or a oneness in some sense it's almost like I see a lot of utility in going from this idea of God as a unity to God as division as such um, which is even like the condition of of possibility for like a command like uh, love thy neighbor as you'd love th- thyself is like well there's divisions between that. Like God, God is divided amongst it, amongst himself already. This type of idea. But say in regards to death of God theology proper, like I, I really and, and here just echoing again, um, Peter Rollins, I think he does a good job articulating the way in which thinkers like Hegel and Nietzsche and psychoanalysis can be thought within the tradition of uh, of death of God theology. Um, you know, he says that whereas the theological revolution of the death of God kind of happens with Protestantism, he says it raises to a a philosophical notion, philosophical cognition with Hegel. And in the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel explicitly talks about death of God. Like oftentimes that idea is attributed to Nietzsche, but it's explicitly in phenomenology of spirit already. So Nietzsche takes that from, from Hegel. Um, and, and of course, Nietzsche radicalizes it. Right. He he totally. Imbe- so, it, you know, and here also sort of drawing on what Rollins was saying is that if Hegel can be seen as as bringing death of God to a philosophical notion, Nietzsche brings death of God to an existentialist notion um, and really brings it to the to lived experience of of everyday life. And, and, and as a and as a challenge, as almost a catastrophe, you know, I'm 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 reminded of. You know, and also in, in, in my work, I have a book called Systems and Subjects, where I try to work with Nietzsche as a political figure in regards to Nietzsche's death of God theology opening up an enormous power vacuum. And the question of a power vacuum, which I think is in some sense prophetic for 20th century political analysis, you know, with the rise of fascism, with the rise of communism, with the rise of capitalism, as in some sense, God substitutes, as in some sense, you know, uh, I like Giorgio Agamben says that uh, God didn't die, he was turned into money, right? Like that is God is like, you know, God is like this virtual capitalistic and like God is actually, you know, active in capital. (laughs) But this is, that's that's a whole other notion. But, you know, ultimately, what I was trying to point towards with with Nietzsche talking about death of God as this almost traumatic encounter um, in, in everyday life of existence, is that in some sense prepares the ground for psychoanalysis. And, and following Rollins, he's saying basically that Freudo-Lacanian tradition is almost giving us the psychotechnologies and the, the institutional dynamics that we would need to cope with the death of God. Um, in some sense, I've heard many people say, and I've I've taught this myself, is that in some sense, Nietzsche discovers the unconscious in a sort of raw immediacy of his intuition, whereas Freud kind of develops this idea conceptually in psychoanalytic institutions as such, right? It's kind of like you can even think about psychoanalysis as the institutionalization of of Nietzsche. And and, and there's all sorts of weird paradoxes that occur in this this process, which I think Lacan brings out um, in his work so well. Um, and, 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 Lacan actually takes a few shots at Nietzsche throughout the accree. And, and, I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to that going into teaching the accree, but, um, in any case, um, you know, this, what are, this what hype, are
0: those shots? I'm not familiar with those. I, I would love to hear about that. Do, do,
1: yeah, there, there's, there's actually, there's, there's a few, there's a few and they're, 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 they're subtle, but they're powerful. Um, you know, he, he talks about deflating Nietzsche's superman. Uh, for example, and 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 you know, on some level, like I because I've I've read Nietzsche quite deeply. I'm sure, yeah, yeah I mean, you're you're deep into Nietzsche right now. Um, that in some sense, sometimes I think that. Lacan is in some sense creating a straw man of Nietzsche or in some sense I don't know if he's if Lacan is engaging with the secondary literature of Nietzsche and maybe the consequences of Nietzscheanism but I always interpret the overman to be mostly about self overcoming and overcoming the self and not creating this big inflated image of a superman but Lacan takes shots totally. at the idea. Of, yeah so but, but Lacan takes shots of this idea of an inflated superman and, and he's against the idea and Lacan is in general against the idea of Great men, uh, the, what he calls the illusion of great men, uh, has a much more trans-individual notion of of consciousness and 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 individuality, in that sense. Um, Lacan also takes shots at Nietzsche for being too life affirmative, um, which I think has more validity, which I think has more truth to it. Um, however. What I paid attention to in Thus Spoke Zarathustra was actually that Zarathustra at the end of the third part actually has like an intimate partner conflict with life itself, right? If you pay attention to the, third, the end of the third part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and actually at the end of the second part as well, it's sort of like a dialectic that undergoes throughout Thus Spoke Zarathustra, you get the sense like life says to him, you don't love me as much as you say you love me. And even life says to him, you're going to leave me soon. So there's this idea, like I get this idea that Nietzsche is actually in a fight with life and and wife and 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 life is kind of like his wife in some sense. And, and Dude, I and love this, that. And this drama unfolds throughout Thus Spoke Zarathustra in a way that's much more ambiguous than you would get just this. Uh, positivist life affirmation that might come out in some uh, Nietzschean scholarship or Nietzschean... Again, it's always... To me, I'm always paying attention to the... Because I'm at Philosophy Portal, I'm so focused on the primary text. I think there's so much that's lost if you just focus on secondary literature. Um, I couldn't agree
0: more. So and, 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 and this text. is where... I'm sorry to interrupt you, Cadell. This is where when you were talking about kind of drawing from multiple figures... I, I do sometimes, and I'm not an expert or professional, but I, I get sometimes frustrated with the Lacanians when they're talking about Jung because it's such a caricatured version, or or the Jungians talking about Freud, and it's like, dude, have you actually read the the primary sources and recognize that these are kind of nuanced figures? And I, I don't think that everyone is just right. I mean, obviously, we need to disagree, and and we can have you know a stake in the game. But I think a lot of shit out there is like caricatures. And it's really it's frustrating true. if you've actually read, you know, multiple
1: people. It, it, it's true. And so it's hard to strike that balance between like there are real stakes in philosophy and like there are like, you know, there like there are real disagreements and like real differences. Like, you know, like for me, I think like the zero level conflict on the highest metaphysical level is like between Hegel and Deleuze. And like, there are these differences between Hegel and Deleuze that are just like s- such huge tensions. And it's like, like, these are irresolvable tensions. But at the same time, I always kind of hold back and I always kind of emphasize, all right, I've read way more Hegel than I've read Deleuze. And I've given Hegel way more time than I've given Deleuze. So I've, so I've got to hold my tongue and I've got to step back. And then, and then I've got to open up a space in the future of my mediation where I go into Deleuze and I make up my own mind in it. In, in, and then I could take a, a deeper stand. So, you know, these types of things, like even like the relationship between Nietzsche and Hegel, like I hear so many, you know, people say if they're Nietzscheans talk about Hegel like this or Hegelians talk about Nietzsche like that. And I'm always looking for some sort of like to me, what I'm looking for is like a like even and I think the example you gave of Freud and, and Jung is I think a great example. I actually and in my defense. I have this presentation on um it was on a channel called um The Golden Shadow, which is a Jungian actually biased uh channel. And I had a presentation on um Freud and Jung, where I try to give both of them their uh I try to I try to open up that conversation in 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 a in a way where I think it was received well. So I, I am I'm with you with that. I, I think this is very important.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, so one of the, I mean, I could talk about all this forever, but but one of the things I, I wanted to kind of get to in terms of your article, which I I've asked Peter Rollins about, and I think it's been very helpful, but but I still kind of struggle with exactly what it means and what it looks like. You know, I guess the the, the two of you have kind of reflected on the church of the contradiction, which maybe to put it too simply is trying to figure out how to bring some of the pyro theology into practice or some of this Lacanian, Žižekian, you know contradiction-centered type of death of God stuff into lived reality. I wonder if you could just kind of riff on kind of that idea of the church or the contradiction, what you mean by it, what it might look like, just wherever your kind of psyche goes with that question.
1: Yeah, so church of the contradiction is... Um, to me, a very promising project. And what I like about it and why I want to support it is because it's a very active project in Peter Rollins' work. I think he's, uh, for anyone who's really interested, to check out Peter Rollins' work, I think he's going to be doing actually a retreat focused on the Church of the Contradiction, which is specifically designed for people associated with the Church to see in what ways these ideas of pyrotheology can help reinvent the church in some sense, you know, from, from within instead of sort of trying to create a new religion or trying to go to like some Eastern esoteric religions to try to reinvent the church from within with some of this philosophical, with some of these philosophical notions. But the idea of the church of the contradiction is basically, you know, I think it's best described in that article with that joke about, you know, the fundamentalist dying and then going into the room and then Jesus comes out pulling his hair out like, how could I have been so wrong? Is like this idea that the, the fundamentalist basically believes that the center holds, that the center is fully consistent, that the center is fully coherent with itself. Here, the center being Jesus or the figure of Jesus as like the ultimate reality. But the, the idea and the joke is that when Jesus, Jesus comes out pulling his hair like, how could I have been so wrong? It's kind of this idea that Jesus himself is contradictory like, or metaphorically, the, the fundamental nature of reality, the heart of reality is contradictory, right? And sort of embracing that and, and sort of living into that um, and sort of seeing ultimately to me, uh, again, teaching the science of logic, I sort of came away from the science of logic saying the fundamental idea there is that contradiction is positive. Like, and, 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 you know, you go through the signs of logic and there's all these negations, right? Like, it's like absolute negativity. You're going through being essence and concept with all these negativities, but what you come to at the end is this idea that all of these negations are because all phenomena are contradictory and that contradiction is positive in that you, you learn about the self through that process. That's how you learn about the self.
0: Yeah, no, and that's, I guess that's, that's, that's
1: that's that's interesting, like to connect the idea that going through contradiction is positive is, again, connected to what I was saying about the truth in psychoanalysis being found in these slips, being found in these deviations, being found in the things that disrupt your narrative.
0: Man, I I, I love to share just some of the examples on a daily basis. You know, I'll have the, the husband in a couple's session that will say, you know, I, I really wanted to do that or my intention was to do that. But when you, when you actually look at his actions, right, that's the truth that speaks. You know, Hegel talks about that action is the thing that's really like the truth. Or, you know, a client the other day was who has a bit of a kind of a, an enmeshed relationship with his mother, you know, accidentally referred to his mother as his wife. And he's like, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that you know, it's kind of Freud's idea of the guy that comes to him and says, you know, I had to dream about my mother, but it's not my mother. <laughs> or, or even when, you know, a client will say, well, I really don't want to offend you, but, you know, and then they'll say kind of the truth, right, that I think they did mean to offend me. So I'm I'm real big on like the Freudian slips and and kind of teasing those out and seeing those as like you were saying, kind of almost the true self that's coming out.
1: For yeah, sure. that's a, so. That's that's perfect, and 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 I think that's why we need a deep connection between the theoretical work and the clinical work, and we need to yes. to 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 use constant. We need, constantly need to be in touch with clinical examples um, in order to like sort of give um, and 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 vice versa. Like clinicians need to be in touch with 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 theory. So like so sort of Absolutely. like they mutually they create a mutual fertility. But yeah, I mean. I was just reading a a paper today by Lacan talking about the truth that we find in bungled actions, right? Like it's a you 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 find the truth in bungled actions, not the consistency of your speech. So that's uh yeah, sometimes disturbing, but uh yeah. It's better better I think better to, better to better to work with the truth. Yeah, no, and it's very humbling. So okay,
0: I wanted to actually throw up on the screen this um we don't have to read the whole thing, but it was a quote from your article where you, I think, you have a great like, definition of grace. I mean, reflecting on kind of Rollins' understanding, could, can you kind of speak to that? Like you connect grace and acceptance and castration. Like maybe for the listeners, you could kind of unpack kind of what you were like communicating in that, in that paragraph.
1: Yeah, so here, just to confront together the, the zero state of grace. and, 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 ex, and ex, You know, it, this, is, this is actually derived from Rollins' critique of 12-step programs. Okay. like in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you have like 12 steps, but he's saying if you don't have a zero level, like if you only have steps one through 12. Then you're 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 not thinking in terms of the zero level and we could connect this back to his uh, his mystical experience where it wasn't another positive experience, but it was rather like a, a subtraction. Yeah, so it wasn't 100 things and I had another one, 101st thing. It was more of a primary experience of a subtraction. Uh, of, of, of a lack. And so in, in this way, he's he's also bringing that into the 12 step program that if you just have steps one through 12. You know, you're, you're missing this zero level, this this radical, which is which is basically the acceptance of the subject, which is that if you could basically to put it in some terms, you can have all of the practical scaffolding of discipline, self-discipline to uh, prevent you from doing this or that thing. But if you don't accept yourself fundamentally, uh, that if you don't have that zero level, that that acceptance of yourself as lacking, then you're you're not going to you. you it doesn't matter how many people uh, confirm you or recognize you or accept you. Uh, you don't you don't fundamentally accept yourself. You don't have that zero state of grace within yourself. So, you know, it, it's both sort of this recognition that the other is castrated and I'm castrated, and and this is. Uh, this is sort of, I think, what Rollins is trying to go through with uh, the Church of the Contradiction and to sort of create um, events or to create social uh, experiences, retreats, where we can, you know, I think that's what Rollins does so well is that he's able to create the artistic stage upon which people can actually experience this firsthand. And it's not just a a philosophical article. That's a sort of an abstract, uh, yeah, an abstract reflection.
0: I really like that Cadell. That's, I think that's really well said. I, I wonder, you know, and, and you can get super specific or, or keep it a little bit vague, but, but how, how does some of this stuff translate into like the political and the social? I mean, I think you've already kind of touched on some of that, but as, as you think about some of these concepts, where, where does your mind go in terms of thinking about like politics?
1: Well, I mean, so I'm going to be starting the Accree course by talking about what I call or what, well, I take this, I mean, Lacan doesn't himself say this, but I take it to interpret what he's saying is like, he calls it ostrich politics and ostrich politics is kind of this idea that um, when we organize our society or we organize our politics around um, basically figures who supposedly know you know, kings, presidents, priests, I don't know, central figures, that actually for Lacan, these figures are like ostriches that have their head in the sand. Like they're not really looking, they're not really paying attention to the truth in the sense that we're talking about the truth, like we've been talking about the truth in slips and deviations and bungled actions, because they're sort of positing the truth as that they sort of have a clear consistent knowledge of it. So this idea of of ostrich politics is this idea that our society our politics has its like collective head in the sand. That's not really paying attention to what to what's actually going on. And so you know I think it really starts you know it starts closest to home um, you know it starts with yourself it starts with your most intimate relationships. It starts with your family. You know, it starts with the people you collaborate with concretely. Um, but to make more room for mistakes, um, to be more forgiving with the other, to, to, to not hold the other up to, to an impossible standard that they could never possibly live up to. Like when we hold ourselves, like so for myself, If I hold myself, I try to hold myself up to to a high standard. It's not like to me, it's not like we shouldn't stop aiming for greatness or something like that. But at the same time, when I hold myself up to a high standard, I also make room within that standard for me not full that I'm an incomplete being and I don't know everything and I'm going to make mistakes and I have weaknesses. And I told my partner partner last night while we were going to sleep, I have my Achilles heel. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got a bow and I've got an arrow in my heel. You know, and 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 this thing, this this arrow in my heel. Um, sometimes I don't know how much of a choice that is.
0: Right. You know exactly. So,
1: the, and that's, I think, the crucial thing is that when we're reifying too much our consciousness, and when we're re when we're reifying too much our ego. And sometimes that can be like, I've heard some spiritualists say like, there's like where you make a spiritual ego for yourself. When we, when we do that too much, we don't make room for that uncomfortable part of our mind, which repeats us. It's not that we repeat it. It repeats us, you know, with, with some of my fixations, whether it be eating, whether it be masturbatory, whether it be whatever you know, those little repetitions. Sometimes I feel like that repeats me that I'm not, and I'm not saying, and, and Lacan's clear too, like you've got to take responsibility for your unconscious. It's not like you not take responsibility for your You can't just say, oh, well, it's my unconscious. But at the same time, we have to make room for that. And, and, we, have to be, and we have to be willing to work with the parts of ourselves that we're deeply uncomfortable with and, 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 and also in the other. And and that can be the most difficult in families and friends and, and, and so
0: dude, absolutely drop the mic. Okay. do, Do you see, do you see any connections with Nietzsche's like psychology of the drives and, and what some would say, you know, in terms of his perspectivism, his perspectivalism that it's, it's not so much that we see the world in different ways. It's that we're almost seeing the world in terms of the drive that's coming up in that moment. Is, yeah, is, is there I, some connections there? Do you think?
1: Yeah, so like like I was saying earlier, like I think we can think of Nietzsche, or at least I I think of Nietzsche as kind of like this, like almost like this self discovery of the unconscious. Um, and, you know, and he's deriving his philosophy from the unconscious, and that means that we are thinking about not a unified, we're not thinking about a unified self, but we're thinking about the self as fragmented drives or fragmented wills. That's exactly right? how and, I and, see it, yeah. And, and, and my metaphysics, I have a paper called, uh, uh, well, I have the metaphysics, I call, it's called non-monism or the not one. So the not one is basically that all of these fragmented drives, this multiplicity of drives, it orbits a not one, meaning that, that and, and the ego wants to make it a one. The ego wants to take all of these different drives and it doesn't want to really understand them as they are. It just wants to make it a unified, coherent self. And so I think what's at stake here is not just an affirmation of the multiplicity of drives that constitute our mind. And like we can go through the psychoanalytic uh, development of these drives. Like for example, the oral, the anal, the phallic, the vision, the voice, the nasal, right? They're basically the orifices of our body. And we know our mind through the orifices of our body. And to, to be a unified, to be a one, would almost be the annihilation of the body. And I think that's what the ego does. The ego annihilates the body in its, in its unified self-conception. And Lacan says that this is because the ego forms as a reaction against the impotent body in which we are all born. In other words, when we're born, he calls it, we're born prematurely. And this is well recognized in all fields. We are born, we are impotent when we're born. We need constant care. We cannot walk until we're however many months old. We can't feed ourselves. We can't go to the washroom ourselves. And think about it from the perspective of the baby you just have this impression that there are these omnipotent beings around you who can apparently do everything that you can't do. You can't walk, you can't talk, you can't drink, you can't make, you. Know, and that's why children, when they're growing up, they have these fantasies of I can't wait till I grow up so I can do this and that that mom and dad do. And then you don't realize that when you're an adult, you, you've you got a whole other nightmare to deal with. <laughs> right? so, so, but the point is, is that, When we're a child, we have these fragmented drive bodies, which are totally impotent and totally dependent on the other. And so our ego tries to create an image of omnipotence where we would be the one and we strive to be the one and we we strive to be that figure. So like for me, I told you my my birth was I was trying to be an athlete. I was trying to be the one. Right. Like I was trying, I was trying, like you say, I was trying to be the guy. Right. You know, and, 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 you know, it was the failure of that one. It was the failure of that drive, which was going to try, which would basically be the ultimate body. Right. Like my version of the ultimate body. And it's the failure of that, which opened me into basically philosophy, basically opened me into philosophy right so i I think philosophy, I think philosophy, theology, art, all of these things these things come out of a of a confrontation with that reality, you know, and you trying to make sense that's at least my my uh my at least my retroactive uh, sense making of it,
0: sure, oh man. so I, I I'm not huge into like Zen Buddhism, but but I dabbled in it intellectually a little bit and. And um, I don't know if you've read uh Richard Boothby's book on like Lacan and the sacred, but he gets into kind of the Kyoto school. And I I guess I'm I'm curious, do, do you see any connections in terms of the not one and, and that kind of vision of, of metaphysics with some of the thinking about the no-self and nothingness and religion? Are are, are there some like fecun connections there or or would you not see it that way?
1: Well, I have so uh, I I've re- are you talking about embracing the void by Boothby? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've yeah I've read that. Actually, I have a conversation with Boothby on the channel about br- embracing the void as well. But the the um you know I love that you go into Boothby's work as well. I think that's super important. I saw you were reading Blown Away. That's such a brave book. Um. Okay. But back to your question. Um. In terms of Zen Buddhism, I, I interpret Buddhism to be. Not the same as what I'm trying to point towards with the not one, because it seems to me like Buddhism tries to get to a substance before language, Very right? True. Like they they see language and discourse and the conceptual mind as, in some sense, um, epiphenomenal or less important or less real than let's say the pre-linguistic self. And what I'm trying to work with the concept of the not one is the self, which is the result of language. The self, which it doesn't run away from language. It doesn't withdraw from language. It works with language. What the not one is. So here's the not one precisely. And I can give a personal example derived from my life. With my third, and I can do this because it's a safe enough distance in my past. (laughs) is with my third girlfriend i had a huge libidinal emotional investment in the signifier i love you right like i'm like when i say i love you i want it to be the one and i want it to be contained in the one and and this is going to be you know at, going on till death right so there's all this libidinal effective investment in the the absolute not obfuscating at all the importance of the signifier i love you right and saying that and the appearance of that and the not one is the constitutive antagonism of your desire for the one that's what the not one is the not one is the real of the failure of the signifier and I and I'm, I'm I know that's jargon. The real of the 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 not one right. is the real <laughs> is the real of 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 of, of the uh, of the failure of the signifier. But I'm giving a very concrete example. Me telling my third girlfriend I love you—that's the signifier. I say that, and then we have a c- catastrophic breakup, which is the real of and the failure of that signifier, right? So then, what do you do? Great example. So then what do you do? Do you, do you withdraw from it, right? So like for me, I went into a recoil from that where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to be monogamous, right? That's a recoil. I'm not going to be monogamous. I'm just going to do a multiplicity, right? But that doesn't solve it either. Why doesn't it solve it? Because when you do that, you hurt the other. And then you realize just as badly as I got hurt, I'm hurting the other just as badly and that hurts just as much because I am the other too. So I think what you have to do is you have to affirm the one abyssally, and then that gives you the perspective on which to navigate the real. Because when you have the idea that the signifier is the real and there's no difference between the signifier and the real, you're going to get blindsided by the real. But when you know that there's, there's a symbolic imaginary and a real use Lacanian terms then you're not confusing your symbolic gesture and your fantasy image with the real and you better not because it'll blindside you it'll take you out (laughs) right so so it's I hope that's clear so so it's it's very affirmative it's very affirmative you have the fantasy and your fantasies like your fantasies are important like your fantasies are important like what you're attracted to that's important and then you have your symbolic, which is the way you try to bring that fantasy into some sort of material relation to the other. Like I'm with this person uh, and 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 I'm boyfriend and girlfriend or I'm husband and wife. however you want to signify, it doesn't matter how you signify it. But you're signifying some bond. and and that comes with the ethics of the si- an ethics of the signifier, which to me is missing in Buddhism, and Zizek will make jokes about that. But then you have the real. And the real is an irreducible antagonism with your desire. So what does that mean? Another jargon-heavy word. What does it mean? I can give another example from from my personal life. My dad was about to prepare for retirement. He was preparing for retirement for his life because he had a very physically intensive job. He was a drywall and plastering business. And then in his when he was 55, he had a pain in his stomach and he goes to the doctor and he has stage four terminal cancer. You have six months to live max. That's the real. And the real is going to slap you. And so the point is, is not to be naive about that. And I'm almost getting tears in my eyes because not yeah. to be naive, not to be naive about that because it's, it's, cause it's going to happen. And so, and and then then what do you do with that? And a lot of people can become nihilistic. A lot of people can become, so But I'm saying we have to affirm our imaginations, our fantasies. They're important. Like, for example, it's not that because I failed to become an athlete that I never should have tried. I learned so many skills and I built myself so deeply from trying. And it's not that, you know, so you still got to affirm it and you got to build the failure into it as positive. And then you still got, a, I think, the symbolic, and this is from Lacan, the imaginary is very, um, it's almost withdrawn, narcissistic, like your own personal fantasies, right? Like your own personal fantasies, which no one else sees, for example. They're your daydreams. They're your dreams. The symbolic is very intersubjective. The symbolic is me and you talking. Like, I'm not, like, if, if you see someone just talking to themselves, you'd say they're psychotic. Like if it's just me here by myself doing this, right? All of a sudden it's all of a sudden it's hilarious, right? Because what the hell am I doing? No, I'm (laughs) I'm I'm speaking to you, right? And and I'm and I'm responding to your questions, right? Right. So so and so that's the symbolic, right? And and so the symbolic is trying to, and, and you can see why the symbolic and the imaginary is a difficult relationship, right? Because you can never see the other person's inner fantasies. You can never know if their fantas their inner fantasies of you are somehow synergistic with your inner fantasies of them. And the only way you can go based on that is they're symbolic, is what they say to you. Or they're or they're symbolic of their body as such, the way, the way they act. Right? They say, I love you, but then I'm going out with this guy. Right? <laughs> like it's like that doesn't match up. Yeah, what there's the a- fuck is
0: happening? <laughs> there's, there's,
1: there's a contradiction here. There's there's a contradiction. It doesn't line up, right? And and that and that, and that you know and and that you got to better work with that contradiction, right? Like it's like you know you you, you know you, that's gonna that's gonna wake you up. But then again, and I just I'll finish here is that the the real is the way your symbolic basic basically basically fails, and and basically like it, it's it's like you know it it's like um you know it. I think you you rise and fall based on how well you can deal with that failure, right? For some reason, I haven't figured this out either. Yeah, I haven't figured this out either. What's the difference between the person who perseveres through the failure of their symbolic and someone who withdraws because of the failure of their symbolic? And and that's actually, I went to a Buddhist temple. I went to Plum Village. It's in South of France. And I made a point to, I was Here's what I'm interested in with Buddhism. I'm interested in talking to the monks. And I'm interested in talking to them about the failure of the symbolic and their response to the failure of the symbolic. And usually what I got in response was the drive to becoming a monk was related to the failure of the one. Internal to the symbolic. And that's the not one. <laughs> so that's a, hopefully that's a good example.
0: Dude, that's great. No, you know, can I, I want to give you a compliment. I think in the world of like Lacan, Lacanian thinkers, you're one of the clearest people I've spoken with. So thank you for putting all these things into language that I think those who, who don't spend much time Lacan can actually understand. So that's, that's really great. With, with that said, I wonder, do you have time for one more question?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. So what are your thoughts on Nietzsche and death drive? I I spoke with a guy that, that I'm reading his books. He's a he's a Nietzschean scholar wanting to connect like Nietzsche with like left politics. His uh dissertation was on like Nietzsche and Freud. So he's very interested in that, but he is not really a fan of Freud. And he ultimately does not see there being a place for Nietzsche in the death drive. I'm I'm still kind of open. I don't know. I'm I'm just curious, someone like yourself that spent a lot of time with both figures. Are there any ways that you connect those? those two things or, or, or how, how do you understand that?
1: Yeah, I I can see why, um, I could see why uh, someone would, would take issue with an, with a Nietzschean death drive. Um, are you, are you there? I'll, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I,
0: I hit the wrong button.
1: That's okay. Okay. So I, I can see why. So, I mean, the classical narrative is that Nietzsche is a life affirmationalist, right? Like, And there's a there's a vital affirmation. And usually the line runs and this is a line that was was built from uh, from Bergson to Deleuze. So that's the like the philosophical lineage here. That's that's really a a mega tension is like Nietzsche, Bergson, Deleuze. On the one hand, and that would be like perhaps a vitalist line of of reasoning. Right, like literally, like uh, uh, Bergson's talking about a uh, Vitel, vital, right, a vital force. And Deleuze is talking about is is, is basically is uh, the philosophy and the logic of affirmation. And and escaping the logic of negation. Right, and then we have another line of thought which we could trace from Hegel to to Freud and Lacan. Right. And there's much more negativity in this lineage. I mean, it's it's sounds silly, but it's like literally like a positive lineage and a negative lineage. But I mean, that's literally the case, because in some sense. Hegel's master concept is absolute negativity. And he sees that as positive, actually. And that's the weird paradox in Hegelian thought, I think, Um now, Freud definitely starts by studying eros. He starts by studying libido. Like the life principle. The life principle, eros, yeah, sure. Eros and thanatos, right? But he, in, in, in his clinical work, he, he stumbles upon the death drive as a traumatic repetition, as something which repeats which is not pleasurable right? That's why it's called beyond the pleasure principle is because there's something which repeats, which is unpleasurable. Now in my life, in my studying myself, that's definitely true that there's a repetition, which I find unpleasurable. My ego finds unpleasurable and which I always try to get rid of it. But actually for Lacan, there's a weird jouissance there. There's a weird beyond of pleasure there. And that to me makes a lot of sense. Now, can you find this in Nietzsche? Now, here's my approach to Nietzsche. Now, I think I, have a, I think I have a strange approach to Nietzsche, so I just give that as a bias. Sure. Right? People focus on, in my view, it's a mistake to focus on the, the real man Nietzsche. It's much more interesting to focus on the fiction of Zarathustra. And I see more truth in the fiction of Zarathustra than in the real of Nietzsche. That's my bias. So the fiction of Zarathustra, and that's why I taught this book Zarathustra. If you study the fiction of Zarathustra, I think he's leaving us with a mythology in that book, which to me has an extremely positive relationship to the death drive in that book. And what I mean by that is that he literally goes through a metaphorical dark night of the soul where, again, life is telling him, you're going to leave me. And he's in an intimate partner conflict with life where basically his ego dies and his ego dies. And what emerges is not only the capacity to sacrifice for the others, but the sacrifice of that sacrifice, meaning he starts to see that sacrifice for the others as not even a sacrifice. Now, this is an interesting question, and I'd love to have a conversation with Peter Rollins about this one time, because I feel like there's an interesting tension there with him where we could have a fun time. We should get the three of us together. I would be totally down. But So the the idea of uh, what I'd want to talk to him about is, can we think through this idea of the sacrifice of the sacrifice in Thus Spoke Zarathustra as somehow related to the negation of the negation in Hegel? That we usually see sacrifice as a negative, but what I see in Thus Spoke Zarathustra is that negativity itself falling away, and to him, that what opens up is the drive of the child spirit, where in some sense he's not even there anymore, and he's not even there anymore to the point where at the end of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he's in some sense metaphorically killed by a cloud of love. He describes it violently where the cloud of love he describes it as like a you know like in the movie 300 where the 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 where the warriors get uh killed by a like a cloud of arrows
0: it's a great image man i love yeah, that yeah it's a great
1: image isn't it yes. and they go into that they go they go into that cloud of arrows like there was a, in that movie 300 there is one guy who who uh who Leonidas sends back to give his wife uh, an important uh, uh personal item oh yeah and he was upset that he didn't get to die with his brothers, right? He was pissed. He was like, oh, I want to die. What the hell? Do I got to go back and live for it, <laughs> right? Like, so like, that's like death drive, like pure death drive, right? But it's all about what we do with this death drive. And Nietzsche in his death drive is he's trying to, to create a bridge to the overmen. And he literally says to the men, the higher men that are in his cave is like, I don't think the overmen are even here with me. But you guys are the bridges to what po- possibly could come in the future. And after that, after that uh, sort of sacrifice to the higher men, he's bombarded by a cloud of uh, arrows, which is, he says, is like love and 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 opens to the spirit child. Now, to me, I like Zizek has this funny joke where he says, um, I would sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta 2. You know, like what happens after the the parliament gets blown up? And I was like, I would just want to replace it with, I would sell my mother into slavery for uh, if Nietzsche would write part five of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, right? Because I feel like there's something which opens up there beyond the spirit child, which I would be interested to know what. Nietzsche does from there on, but he leaves it open. And, and there are rumors that there was a fifth uh, part of the book, Zarathustra, but obviously it never published. And who, who, who the hell knows? I think it's up to us to think through it. But um, to me, the question of, of of the death drive is basically the idea that life is not internally consistent that life itself is ruptured from within itself so there's not this sort of um vital whole, and that's that's the stakes and i and who knows right what the right like who knows like this is like deepest metaphysics right but like showing totally my bias is it's it's To me, it's not possible to to affirm without some relationship to death. And now bring it back to, to Peter Rollins' work. That's the importance of pyrotheology. Pyrotheology is basically saying it's not the naive Christian notion that when we die, we go to a supernatural space, but that if we confront death in this life, that there's life on the other side of that. And and I just wanna say that for, for me personally, I interpret that in regards to the shattering of my ego, which opened me up to psychoanalysis, the shattering of the love encounter, the shattering of the subjective destitution that you find in the most tragedies of love or death of loved ones or tragedies in families, which are just irreducible contradictions that you just have to learn to live with. That when you get shattered by those things, there is an other side to that and 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 what's at stake in pyro theology is not letting those things kill you before you're dead you know what i mean like like not to like become totally. like a not just to become not to give up not to just give up
0: yeah man okay i think that's a wonderful place to kind of end man this has been really life-giving for me and and also connected to death you know Well, I'll I'll have space for both. Like, this is, this is really good, Cadell. Like, I'm I'm so grateful that, that I had you on and that you were gracious enough to be a guest. I hope it's not the last time you'll be on because I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. And I I really enjoy how you bring all the various things together. That's, it's really how I like to do things as well. And, And, and I'm totally fine, you know, disagreeing with people and having different emphases, but that's, I think the only way that I can learn. So, so thank you for your time and, and your thoughts.
1: Can I just say you have a fantastic podcast voice?
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I
1: think you you're really the first person good, to say that. Thank you. You have a really good. You have. Like, I feel like you. You, like you have like a radio show host voice. Like is a really good. Uh. Anyway, it's good. But I really love what you. I genuinely. I really love what you're doing. I saw that you brought thank together you. Um, McGowan and Rollins, and 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 I. I really think what I'm trying to think through just to, as, as totally open. I, with all the, you know, the, the virtual relationships to me, it's about getting a loop between the virtual and the physical. So it's not just a disembodied relationship. Yes. Uh, That's why I liked meeting up with Rollins and, and, and actually having an embodied presence together and and building that, you know, but that's what it's about really. Right. Like, so, but like, to me, it's about, cause I'm like, I'm building philosophy portal. So like Hegel has this idea of the absolute spirit, as philosophy religion and art mm. now we could debate we could debate whether this is the absolute spirit or not but it's like as a subject you sort of embody a position in the absolute spirit and you could have it in between space as well is like what's the relationship between philosophy and theology what's the relationship between theology and art art and philosophy and all those three interconnections and the subjects who embody those positions to me that's what i want that's to me the ground of a culture
0: yeah i love that dude that 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 resonates okay well again thank you and yeah i'm I'm sure we're going to connect i'm, I'm going to go ahead and just end the broadcast and we can kind of connect afterwards
1: all right thanks for having me on
0: <laughs> absolutely